Welcome to the CJC Weekly Bible Study, where CJC stands for Complete Jesus Christ. If your perspective of Jesus is based only on teachings from the New Testament, then your understanding is incomplete. Regarding what we often call the Old Testament, Jesus himself said, These are the very scriptures that testify about me. So won't you join us today in our study where we esteem the newer and the older testaments alike. I'm your host, Jeff Smith. And currently, we're working our way verse by verse through the first book of the Bible, Genesis. But, uh, all right, let's, let's jump back in. Genesis chapter 28. Genesis chapter 28. We are in a new chapter. Last week, we crossed into Genesis chapter 28. Uh, we looked at the material uh, last week, starting in Genesis chapter 27, verse 41, and it took us all the way through chapter 28, verse 5. And just by way of review, explaining a little bit about what happened last week, you remember that Esau was consoling himself, as soon as my dad dies, I'm going to go kill my brother. <laughs> I'm so mm-hmm. mad at him, I'm going to kill my brother. And then uh, mom found out about it, Rebecca found out about it, went to Jacob and said, hey, you need to get out of here because what you did, he wants to kill you because of what you did. And I'm thinking, mom, that was your idea. He just went along with it, but okay. And, uh, and so uh, she ends up working out a, a scheme where she goes to, to dad to Isaac, Rebecca goes to Isaac and says, uh, you know what, you and I, we know we're both so frustrated with Esau's wives, he decided to marry these women that are from this land, the, the Hittites, these women that are Hittites. So what was my life going to be worth anything if, if my son Jacob ends up marrying one of these women? Send him away so that he can go and find a woman from, you know, some good family. Well, you know, obviously it turns out that's her family. So dad buys off on the idea. Dad goes to Jacob, says to Jacob, hey, it's not a good idea for you to marry one of these women around here. They don't trust and believe in the same God the way we trust and believe in him. And so you need to go way far away, and you need to find yourself a wonderful woman. And so the only place I can think of is to send you back to the home of my wife, send you back to Rebecca's home. She has a brother named Laban. You're to go and get a wife from his daughters for yourself over there in Haran, over in Padanaram. So that's kind of where we pick up, that dad has commissioned Jacob to go on this journey, to go find a wife in Haran, over in Mesopotamia, if you will, or Padanaram. And so Jacob either has just started on that journey or he's about to start on that journey when we pick up in verses 6 through 9. 6 through 9 is just kind of a little glimpse, though, of what's going on in Esau's life, all right? So it looks like Jacob has already left camp, and it says here regarding Esau, it says in verses 6 through 9, Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padanaram to take for himself a wife from there, and that as he blessed him, he gave him a charge, saying, You shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan, and that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and had gone to Padanaram. Also, Esau saw that the daughters of Canaan did not please his father Isaac. So Esau went to Ishmael and took Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebajoth, to be his wife in addition to the wives that he had. And so it looks like Esau is like, oh, what? You don't like my wives? (laughs) If he didn't figure it out before, now he's obviously figured it out, that dad and mom are not pleased with the women that he decided to marry. And we we found out about that in the last two verses of Genesis chapter 26, where they were a grief to dad and mom. They were a grief to Isaac and Rebekah. And so now he thinks he's going to patch it over a little bit by finding a wife from somebody closer in kin than just the women of the land. 
And so he ends up going to Ishmael and uh, finding, hey, Ishmael's got a daughter. I'd marry her. And so he marries this woman and thinking that's going to help things. Uh, No, not really. It's not. (laughs) But uh, it's kind of interesting, too, that we see that Ishmael, you remember Ishmael, he was kind of like the older son that was not in favor and rejected by God. And here is Esau, the older son, by a few minutes, they're twins, but he's the older son, out of favor and rejected by God. And they are aligning themselves with one another. It's kind of interesting how that worked out. Uncle Ishmael, right? Yep. Yeah, Yeah, basically, Uncle Ishmael. Yeah. And then uh, moving on to verse 10. Now Jacob went out from Beersheba and went toward Haran. So this journey from Beersheba to Haran, this is a long, long way. We've talked about this before. It's about 500, 550 miles on foot, on camel, on, on a donkey, it doesn't matter how you slice it. That's a long way. That's going to be a good long trip, all right? And as far as his age, we don't know how old he is when he begins this journey. We know that the incident that happened when Esau married these two women, the Hittites, or the women of the Hittites, that he was 40. And so Jacob, being a twin, he's 40 as well at that time. Well, that was the end of chapter 26. We're in chapter 28. If these arranged chronologically, some time has passed. How much time, we don't know. So he's at least 40 years old. Some would even suggest as high as in the 70s, all right? So it's clear. He's not a boy. He's a grown man, but he's a grown man that's been living uh, attached to mom's skirts the whole time, if you will, all right? He's been living at home. He's been living in the camp. He hasn't been venturing out hunting game like his older brother has. He's been a homebody and been content to be a homebody. You know anybody like that? You're an adult. For all intents and purposes, your age says you're an adult, but you're living at home with mom. you got no life experience. It's time to move out. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Does that, that ring <laughs> We can all think of people, I'm sure, that fall into that mold. And it's time for him to move out. So he's moved along. He's on his journey. He's on his way. And uh, he's going from Beersheba to Haran. This is some, some of this is going to be hostile territory. I mean, some of these traveling routes, you would have. it's not uncommon for you to have robbers or... Uh, people that want to take advantage of you, people that want to waylay you, if if, if you will. Uh, verse 11, so he came to a certain place and stayed there all night because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of that place and put it at his head and he lay down in that place to sleep. All right, so this place that he ends up coming to, we, we're not given the name of this place yet. Before the story's over, we'll have a name for this place. In fact, we'll have two names for this place, all right? But right now, it's just a random place. It describes, the word that's chosen is a word that just describes the randomness of him just choosing this place. We find out uh, later on in these verses that it's actually associated with a village or a city or an establishment of some sort, at least nearby, a city or a village called Blues. All right. So he's on his way. He's on this journey. It's a long way from here to there. It's 550 miles. It's probably going to take a month or two for him to make this journey. Of that month or two that he's going to be on the road, we only know about one little glimpse of that entire journey. Here it is. This is it. We're looking at the glimpse of this entire journey, month or two months, and this is basically the only thing that stands out as being noteworthy to be put in the Bible. All right. I can tell you, and, and you guys were here for uh, just recently, I went on a vacation. It was a six-day vacation or a six-night, seven-day vacation, and we went and saw three places, and I told you, there was something wonderful I could tell you about each and every day. But I tell you what, of, of those six days and the wonderful things that we saw and the wonderful things that we did, none of it amounts to this one night, mm-hmm. this one incident mm-hmm. that we're having here. Out of a month and a half, mm-hmm. this, is, this, is, this is it. This is worth, <laughs> mm-hmm. this surpasses anything I did in all the six days combined. All right, by far. So he's in this place, this unnamed place, this random place. He decides he's going to go to sleep. He's not, though, finding lodging in the village nearby. 
which is kind of strange. You think, why, why isn't he? Why isn't he finding a place to sleep over in Luz? If it's so close, it's associated as being alongside or with that place, but he's not sleeping there. Well, wait a minute. Let's consider the circumstances that prompted his leaving. Brother wants to kill me. <laughs> All right? So if brother wants to kill me and now I'm on my journey, I have a month and a half of travel ahead of me. If brother wants to kill me, he's used to leaving camp and going out on his own. And what better place to kill me than on this journey? Because what would it look like from the perspective of the people back at camp? I'll be back in a while. I'm going to go get myself some uh, deer or something and make you a nice pot of stew. And then what? Find your brother, chase him down, kill him, and then come back with a deer over your shoulders and go, hey, and nobody knows, nobody's the wiser. All right? So Jacob's probably a little fearful here. He's probably fearful, and he's fearful that if he stays in the establishment where the people are, that's naturally where my brother would look for me. Right? If he knows the route I'm going to take, he's going to probably figure out that that village over there is the place naturally where I would stay. He would go to the village, hey, you see anybody that looks like this? <laughs> and have a drawing of his brother or something. You know? <laughs> and then find him and kill him, and that wouldn't be too hard. So he's got himself a place out in the field, out in you know, someplace removed from the establishment of where they're living. And that's where he's going to be sleeping for the night. He's, he's in fear. He's in fear for his life. That was what prompted the whole journey. But there's a few other things as well. If you think about what he's leaving behind... He's probably lonely, too, because he's been, all of his life, raised in a village proper of his own. It would move from place to place, but it was the family village. And if you remember how many people were associated with that, well, if you go back to Abraham, Isaac's dad, Abraham was able to muster an army of over 300 fighting men from among the people that were associated with this caravan moving around. So there's hundreds of people that Jacob has been living among, now he's on his own out in the middle of wherever this is, right? So he's probably fearful. He's probably lonely. And you know what? He used to be pretty important, pretty important in that little community because he was looking like he was, I mean, he was the son of the head chief guy and he's he's one of two sons and now he had the, he had the birthright and he had the blessing. I mean, he was on the fast track to being in charge of everybody. So he's probably pretty well known, which carries with it something else. They probably talked among that community as to what happened. Jacob's not here anymore. What? Jacob left? Where's Jacob? He never leaves. He's always in the kitchen. <laughs> how could it be that Jacob's gone? Well, you know, I heard this about how he tricked his brother. What? He tricked his... And he stole... And he tricked dad. What? He tricked his dad to... Oh, and the rumors that would go around. So Jacob's probably in this field, fearful... He's probably lonely, and he's probably feeling shame. And he's also now impoverished. He used to have it all. Everything that could be offered, he was the son of the chief. And now he's got only what he can carry with him. So he's out in this field or wherever it might be, and he decides this is a good enough place to sleep. He's probably trying to put a lot of distance between him and his brother. He's probably trying to make good time on this journey. So he's probably been walking all daylight hours. And finally, when the sun is setting, it's time to go to bed. And he's probably exhausted. I'm really tired. It's time to go to bed. Oh, let's see. I need a good pillow. Mm -hmm. That big stone will do. He pulls up a stone for a pillow. He moves and positions a stone for his head. How weird is that, right? I'm thinking if I go to a mattress store and they want to sell me on this mattress and they go and we'll throw in two pillows and I'm like, okay, that sounds like, and if they give me two big stones, I'm not going to go for it, right? I don't find that comfortable or nor attractive. But uh, back then, this actually, they would use hard objects 
to rest their heads while they would sleep. And sometimes they would even have designated devices that they would set their head on that were made of metal. So I guess a stone is just as hard as metal. I guess that's what they're used to using as pillows. So he uses this stone for a pillow while he's feeling fear and shame and loneliness and impoverished out there on his own on this journey. And then verse 12, it says, Then he dreamed, and behold, a ladder was set up on the earth, and its top reached to heaven, and there the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And I read that, and I go, a ladder? Is that like a painter's ladder? Mm-hmm. Like the ladder I use when I hang up Christmas lights along the eaves? Is that what he's imagining when he's asleep at night? No, probably not. It's probably not a painter's ladder. It's probably not the ladder I'm using when I'm hanging up the Christmas lights. Maybe a rope ladder. Could you imagine a rope ladder? The kind you'd throw over the side of a sailboat, you know, and you go for a swim, and then it's time to come back on the boat, and you climb up the rope ladder. The word is ladder. But this is the only place in the entire Bible where this word appears. So there's some discussion. What does it mean? Does it actually mean ladder? And some would say, well, maybe it's staircase. And some would even say, it can't mean ladder. I mean, for goodness sakes, the angels are going up and down. How do you pass somebody on a ladder? Right? They're like, does an angel go on this side and go, okay, watch out, be careful. Oh, my wing, careful. You know, no. I mean, when you think about it, Does an angel even need a ladder, right? I mean, it seems like an argument that really doesn't need to be had. But some would suggest that instead of a ladder, maybe it's a stairway. Maybe it's a stairway to heaven instead of a ladder coming from heaven or going to heaven. And then some would even suggest that the word sounds like another word from another language that's kind of like that staircase on a ziggurat. If you picture an old-time ziggurat, right, in the staircases that lead up to the top where God is supposed to be able to come down and meet with man. That would be the top of the ziggurat. And that this is maybe in his dream, he's picturing that staircase idea going up as if that's your entryway to heaven or that's the the way, the path up and down between heaven. No matter what the form it was that it took, it's a bridge. It's a bridge between heaven and earth. It's a passageway, if you will. So it also would suggest to somebody that God's still paying attention to us. You know, that God hasn't taken the world like a wind-up watch and wound it up and set it on its own as if uh, he's all done. I mean, in this vision, it would suggest that God's still actively engaged in connecting. All right, so that's kind of interesting as well. And then here you have angels. Angels are messengers, all right? Angels are messengers of God, and you find that they serve different roles. And if you read through your Bible, you'll find that some of the roles that angels provide or serve in, uh, one is a role of protecting. Another is for angels to serve in the role of a guide, Another is to serve in the role to encourage, and another is to serve in the role to escort, all of which would be important right now. As Jacob is out there alone, he probably would be uh, quite welcoming of the idea that maybe a messenger from God might be sent to protect me. Maybe a messenger from God might be sent to guide me, to encourage me, or to escort me. So the roles of angels, that uh, that would be encouraging to see that to see angels coming up and down. Uh, And we're speculating a little bit, of course, trying to read into it what we find that is taught in other places in the Bible. And then verse 13. Somebody mind reading verse 13? And behold, the Lord stood above above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie I will give give to you and your descendants. Excellent. Thank you, Gabriela. As Gabriela was reading that just now, though, she stumbled just a little bit, as you read. And it's interesting where you stumbled. 
Because where you stumbled is on the one word there where in the New King James Version, it says the Lord stood above it and said. And you also, you stumbled and you said him in there. Does your version actually have a him? I'm curious. The reason I'm curious is because this word can be translated one of two ways. The word there that's translated in the New King James as above can also be translated as beside him. So it's either above it is the phrase or beside him is the phrase. So it was was really neat to actually hear you stumble there (laughs) because that actually afforded me this opportunity to point that out. The word can be translated either way. So as as we're trying to imagine this vision that he's having, this dream that he's having, Jacob's having this dream and the Lord is where? It's not clear from the language that we're seeing here whether the Lord is on top, at the top of the stairs, or whether the Lord is right beside him. It's not clear whether whether we've got him up there or down here or what. So thank you, Gabriella. <laughs> if you look at the language of verse 16, when Jacob finally wakes up, he ends up making a statement or an exclamation that he says, the Lord is in this place and I, and I didn't know it. And that suggests maybe from Jacob's perspective that he pictured the Lord being next to him, right? Because if God's at the top of the stairs then is he in this place? I mean, if he's up there, is he here? It sounds like from his statement in verse 16 that maybe it's more likely he is here, but most of your translation committees choose to translate it as stood above the ladder or at the top of the ladder. And here the Lord is speaking, right? This is the first time the Lord is speaking in this passage, and it's actually the first time the Lord is speaking to Jacob. Jacob has never met God yet, face to face, if you will. All right, okay, maybe this is not face-to-face, but you know what I mean. He's never been in the presence of God in the sense that God has introduced himself to him like he has for his father or his grandfather, all right? God appeared to Abraham. God appeared to Isaac. That hadn't happened to Jacob yet. So this is the first time in his life. And in fact, we read the language here, and we find it very familiar. When the Lord says, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give to you and your descendants. We read that and we go, oh, I've heard that before. In fact, I think I've heard that before several times. He's never heard it before. Dad heard it and grandpa heard it from God's mouth, but he hasn't heard it yet. For Jacob, this is new. I'm sure Jacob, when he was back home, heard stories of grandpa Abraham meeting God. And God giving that covenantal promise to Abraham. And I'm sure he heard the stories of his own father, Isaac, telling how God met with him and transferred and conveyed those prom- that same promise, that same multifaceted promise from Abraham to Isaac. But it never happened to Jacob until now. God is taking that promise that he originally gave to Abraham and then that same promise that he gave to Isaac and now that same promise he's giving to Jacob. What's interesting is you read this and how does God introduce himself? He says, I'm the God of Abraham, your father, father, and the God of Isaac. All right, so he's the God of generation one. He's the God of generation two. And it's as it's left as if we're wondering, is he going to be the God of Jacob as well? It sounds like he's willing for his part. He's willing, but he doesn't introduce himself that way. He doesn't say, I'm the God of Abraham, I'm the God of Isaac, and I'm your God too. No, he says, I'm the God of Abraham, I'm the God of Isaac. It's up to Jacob to make the choice too, whether or not he's going to yield himself. And that's the same for us. You know, if my dad or if my mom are Christians, it doesn't mean I am. 
if God comes to me and introduces himself to me as I'm the God of your father, or I'm the God of your mother, it doesn't mean I get a free pass, all right? It's the same with all of us. We all need to make a personal choice whether we're going to be yielded to God or not. And just because he's the God of somebody we're closely related to doesn't necessarily mean we get to benefit from all that relationship that they have. We need to have a personal relationship as well. I heard somebody say it this way. God has no grandchildren. John, the one that writes the Gospel of John, who also writes 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, the book of Revelation. In 1 John, he tells us that we have this opportunity to become children of God, not grandchildren. God has no grandchildren. Just because my parents might be children of God, I don't get to be a grandchild of God. No, it's either I'm in a part of the family as a child of God, or I'm not. So we need to make that decision to follow God as well. You would think in God's first speaking to Jacob here that he would rebuke him. Right? That's what I would think. I mean, what just happened? He just deceived his brother. He just deceived his dad. And now God shows up and he says, I am the God of your father, Isaac. I would think that sounds like a rebuke's coming, but he doesn't rebuke him. I would think he would say, you know what? I saw what you did back there. That was wrong. I saw you deceive your brother. I saw you deceive your dad. There's been nothing good in what I've seen in you so far. You would think that that would be coming. But the rebuke isn't there, which is strange. And then moving on from that information, in this situation where God appears to him, back then it was thought that the deity was in charge of a particular place. And he's not in that place anymore. So the God of my father and the God of my grandfather, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, what is he doing here? Would be a natural question. Because you would think, these gods, they're only in charge of localized areas. And I've moved on from my localized area. And the God of my fathers is back there, as far as I know. He wouldn't be expecting to meet the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac removed from them. It forces him to realize something. This is a big God. (laughs) That if this is real, if this God, this person that's appearing to me, this God of my Abraham and my Isaac is real, then that means he's bigger than just that land back there that I've walked away from. That means he must be the God of at least there and here, that, that big of an area. So it definitely challenges an understanding of seeing this God as a localized God, as was popular for all the other gods that they had at that time. Verse 14, somebody mind reading verse 14? Also your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and to the east, to the north and the south. And in you and your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Excellent. Thank you, Mike. Does that language sound familiar? Yeah. Yeah, it's the other part of the covenantal promises, right? I mean, that's kind of the same language that was used even uh, when God met with Abraham from that initial Genesis chapter 12. I mean, this is the same language. The interesting thing is, if you remember when God said that to Abraham, was Abraham married? He was. He was married to Sarah, but he had no children. So it required some faith. In this situation, is Jacob married? He's not even married. He doesn't have children, and he's not even married. So it requires an extra measure of faith, if you will. It's as if God is saying, here's what I'm putting on the table, and as if to say, do you believe me or not? He's taking those same promises, and if the promises are to come true, and now God's conveying them to Jacob, it's saying that God is intending to take him, not just all the way to Haran successfully. He's not going to die on the way. Nobody's going to kill him on the way. But that he's going to end up getting married, he's going to end up having children. Because God, if he's going to keep his promises, all of those things have to happen. So God is encouraging him, in a sense, by saying, I'm going to bring to fruition, I'm going to bring to fulfillment these things. 
And that would provide encouragement for somebody who's out in the middle of nowhere thinking, am I even going to make it to the end of this journey, much less find somebody to marry and then get married and have kids. All right. So it would be very encouraging for him to think. This is the fifth time that we've seen this language, this covenant being conveyed or promised or reminded, people being reminded of it. It's also interesting, too, when it talks about inheriting the land. You remember that Isaac conveyed that upon Jacob. May God increase you and may God bless you with this land, right? Mm -hmm. As a desire to see fulfilled in his life. It was a wish on the part of dad passing it on to Jacob. Now it's a promise that God is making. So God is God is saying, I'll take that wish and I'll, I'll up it to a promise. And then verse 15. Somebody am I reading verse 15? Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. Excellent. Thank you, Mike. So here we have several promises. I'm with you. I will keep you. I'll bring you back. I'll not leave you. And you and I share in these same promises nowadays. And you might be thinking, wait a minute, but it's spoken to Jacob. Yeah, but you can find a New Testament counterpart to all of these. For example, the I am with you. That should sound familiar from Matthew 28, 20, teaching them to observe all things I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We have that same promise spoken by Jesus. You also have another one here in 2 Timothy 1.12 about keeping us. Paul says, For this reason I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. Same general promise, all right, applies to us, all right? God's nature is such that he is with us. God's nature is such that he's willing to keep us. He's able to keep us. God's nature is such that he can bring us back to the promised places, and God's nature is such with us that he'll never leave us. I mean, that's in his nature. So we find that, should it be surprising that he would make the same promises back then to Jacob as as we would find uh, appropriate for us as well? No, it shouldn't. If it's the same God and same character and same nature, it should be completely consistent. And it is, and that's what we see here. One of the things as well, and perhaps if we move too fast away from verse 14, is when it talks about in you and in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. You've heard me say it every time that we've run across this wording, that Paul uses this same phrase, this seed in Galatians 3.16, to say the ultimate fulfillment of this is Christ. Jesus, Yeshua, ends up being the ultimate fulfillment to that. Verse 16, that Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And here, it, uh, again, even when he was asleep, and now he's awake, recognizing that I thought that God was over there, but apparently he's not. Apparently he's here as well, and I was unaware. You know what that says to us? That we can be in the presence of God and be unaware of it. That God can be there, right there with us, in a place of desolation. That God could be there right there with us when we're in fear. That God could be there in that place with us when we're in our shame, in that place of shame. That God can be there in that place with us when we're feeling impoverished. That God can be there and we're unaware. And Jacob wakes up and he goes, oh my goodness, he's here and I was unaware. And I'm sure there's going to be times in our lives when we're going to wake up the next day and say, God was there with me yesterday. God was there with me last night and I didn't even know it. We could take courage in recognizing as we're looking at these things that God is there with us, even when we're unaware, even when we don't think that he is. The interesting or the fun thing about this is Jacob is on this journey to find a wife, and he ends up finding so much more on the way. (laughs) Before he even gets there, he finds God. He finds God on his way to find a wife. 
Verse 17, and he was afraid, this is Jacob, and he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. Then Jacob rose early in the morning and took the stone that he had put at his head, set it up as a pillar, and poured oil on top of it. What it says there in verse 17, the house of God, that the word is Bethel. That means house of God. In fact, we're going to see that exact word being used in the next verse, in verse 19. Uh, but in verse 18, he takes that stone that was his pillow, and he ends up setting it upright. So apparently his pillow was one of those long ones. You know, have you seen the long pillows? Not just the regular size pillows, but the big ones. All right, so he's got the big stone. All right, and it's such that he takes it and he stands it up and he pours oil on it. This is the first time that we see the word pillar. This is the first time we see pour, and this is the first time we see oil. By pouring the oil on it, what's another word for that? A word that we're more familiar with. He's anointing it. He's pouring oil on it as a form of anointing. Anointing something with oil in the Bible is very typical, very common. This is just the first time, but you're going to see it a lot as we move through it. But it usually encompasses two different things. One is it declares something to be holy or set apart for God's purposes. All right? So it's holy, and then it also vests that thing usually with authority. Now, sometimes sometimes stones were set up also. You find it as a monument to a tomb or at a tomb, or in conjunction with somebody famous or somebody dearly loved passed away, and you'd set up a, a stone there, all right? Or sometimes you would set up a stone, and it would be, another purpose would be to establish a boundary. This is the marker. On that side is your territory, on this side is mine, okay? So you'd set up as a marker. But barring those two uses of the word, overwhelmingly, when you see it used in this way, when you would set up a stone, you would anoint it. It would have two purposes, or two things would be meant by the anointing. It's holy or set apart, something set apart for God. And then there's that investing it with authority or declaring it to have authority. Interesting thing, anointing, all right, as you move through your Bible and you get into the New Testament, you find that the anointed one, the title Christ, means the anointed one. Christ means the anointed one. And interestingly, when you get to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 21 and 22, you find that not only is Christ anointed, but God anoints us. God anoints us, you and me and, and all of us here. God anoints us. What does that mean? How, how is it that we could even be anointed? Look at the two meanings up there. When we're declared to be anointed by God, we're declared to be what? Holy and set apart for God's purposes. Are we living like we're holy and set apart for God's purposes? We should be, because that's what we're made for. <laughs> that's, what, that's our destiny. We're holy and set apart for God. And the other one is we're vested with authority. Authority. But what kind of authority? <laughs> Power, okay? <laughs> that's a whole study of its own, all right? And we should, maybe I should have stopped there, and we could have done a whole study on it. And I'm looking at the time. No, we don't have time. All right? <laughs> Just recognize, look at the board, holy and with authority. All right, that's us. All right? Fulfill that. Go and fulfill that. All right. Moving on from there, this pillar that he sets up in the time of the patriarchs, in the time of Genesis, in the time of Exodus, in the time of Moses, setting up a pillar, no big deal, nothing wrong with it. But as time moves forward, ends up happening that these pillars that get set up, they take on this nuance of cultic ritual and pagan worship, and it becomes this detestable thing. In fact, in Hosea and Amos, it becomes so bad that they're just ranting at the setting up of pillars, and it it comes to be not a symbol of the goodness of God or the appearance of God in the world, but it becomes a, a, a device or an object of worship, all right, that these pillars end up becoming these symbols for the false gods, or they end up becoming testimonies to the children of Israel falling away from the one true God and worshiping the false gods. So it ends up, as time goes by, that these things become detestable. At this time, it's not, but it eventually does become that. Interestingly as well in these verses, he sets up the stone as a pillar, 
but he doesn't build an altar. His grandpa built an altar, Abraham, when God met with him. He built an altar. He built a couple. Isaac built an altar. Jacob, he's not building an altar. He's standing up a stone. It's almost like if you read between the lines, it's like he's the baby Christian. All right? He hasn't matured in his spiritual life, if you will. This could be day one of his spiritual life, if you will. Uh, verse 19, and he called the name of the place Bethel, meaning house of God. But the name of that city had been Luz. Luz, is, it means uh, nut or almond or hazelnut or even a nut tree itself. Uh, regarding Luz, it's a place that has a name. It's the city or the village that's very nearby, close enough to give association to that area. All right? But it ends up becoming or being called Bethel as a result of this experience, as a result of this incident. But we've seen the name Bethel before. We've seen it in chapter 12. We've seen it in chapter 13. The reason we see it before is because the author, in writing these things down, is using the name that's current at the time he's writing it. And he's describing the place where it happened using the words and language for the people at that time so that they would understand where this happened. But the name itself wasn't given until this incident happened. Okay, does that make sense to everybody? All right. Uh, moving on from there, uh, Luz and Bethel. It sounds like from this verse that they might be co-joined or might be uh, one and the same, but we do find out from Joshua chapter 16, verse 2, that they're actually distinct from one another. So what it turns out to be is they're apparently very close to one another, but not the same, not exactly the same thing. Like the stone that he stands up that used to be a symbol of God's goodness or God's appearance and becomes instead over time, it moves from a symbol to an idol. So does Bethel. Bethel at this time, I mean, this is amazing. God appears to Jacob at Bethel. But over time, Bethel becomes this place that is just corrupt. In fact, Amos and Hosea as well rail against it. In fact, Hosea ends up making a jab at Bethel and ends up calling it Beth-Avon, which means house of nothingness or house of wickedness. All right, so eventually, as time goes on, this symbol gives way to an idol and needs to be destroyed. By the way, symbols becoming idols. If a stone stood up as a symbol, God appeared to me here, and then becomes an idol, that means something can happen. It's not that the stone changed, right? It's the way we see the stone. We need to be careful about taking symbols and making them into idols. And this is going to be kind of touchy ground here, but stay with me. The symbol of the cross. The symbol of the cross can be a symbol of something great that God did in your life. But if you're not careful, your affections for that symbol can make it into an idol. When you start worshiping the symbol over what it means and over who died and what that purchased for us, that instead of worshiping the one who died on the cross, the one who shed his blood, who paved the way for us to come to know God, instead of worshiping if you're worshiping the symbol, and we see this all the time when we're working over in the jails. You got the inmates. They do not love God. They're not following God, but they got that tattoo of the cross. Because it's a talisman. It's a, it's a good luck charm. They're hoping that that's going to save them, that that's going to protect them, right? As if something's not going to be able to harm them because they've got that cross on them. You see people wear it on a necklace. Sometimes people wear the cross on a necklace because this, is, this means to me what God did for me. And others think this is going to keep me from getting in a car accident. You know, so you've got to be careful as to what it means. Don't take those symbols and allow them to become idols. And then verse 20. Oh, I'm looking at the clock. Where are we going? All right, we got two more verses. We're going to finish. We're going to, I'll make it fast. Then Jacob made a vow. This is the first vow ever made in the Bible. If God will be with me and keep me in the way that I am going and give me bread to eat and clothing to put on, right? So he's making this conditional offer to God. The other guys before him, they didn't make vows. They made commitments. Here, Jacob's making a vow. It sounds like he's trying to bargain with God. 
And he's saying, if you'll do this and if you'll do this, all right, uh, what are the things he's concerned with? He's concerned about food and clothing. God says, I'm going to give you the whole land. And he goes, I'm just I'm concerned about what I'm going to eat tomorrow, and I'm concerned about what I'm going to wear when my sandals wear out before I get to the place I'm going. He's concerned about food and clothing. What does Jesus say about food and clothing? Matthew 6, 31 through 33 says this, Don't worry about what shall we eat, what shall we drink, what shall we wear. That's food and clothing. For after all these things the Gentiles seek, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Don't worry about food and clothing. You worry about food and clothing? Seek first the kingdom of God. That's the recipe for dealing with your worries about food and clothing. Seek first the kingdom of God. Verse 21, so that I come back to my father's house in peace and the Lord shall be my God. So that was his third condition. Hey, God, if you'll do these things, then I'll I'll let you be my God. Really, you'll let me be your God. And this stone, which I have set as a pillar, shall be God's house. And all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. So he does actually make a commitment here. He's deciding he's going to tithe. He thinks if God's going to follow through on this, then I'll, I'll provide a tenth of everything that he gives me. Uh, it's probably he's intending to provide the tithe in the form of livestock. And eventually he is going to be in charge of livestock and he's going to be blessed with livestock. And you know what's interesting is as we were reading through this, there were two things that stood out. One was he didn't build an altar, but later he will at this place. In Genesis 35, we're going to find out he does build an altar. And he fulfills that part of the, his vow. He recognizes God came through for me. God made promises in my life, and he followed through and fulfilled those promises in my life. When we met God, right, when God introduces himself to Jacob and says, I am the God of your father Abraham, and I am the God of Isaac, all right? I am the God of Abraham, I'm the God of Isaac, and we were left wondering, is he going to be the God of Jacob? And we find in Exodus, when God appears to Moses, he adds to that list, the God of Jacob. I'm the God of Abraham, I'm the God of Isaac, I'm the God of Jacob. So we find out it turned out well. <laughs> it turned out well, but that's quite a ways away for us. One other thing as well, this ladder, this stairway reaching to heaven, what is that all about? Jesus makes an interesting comment. In the Gospel of John in, in chapter 1, uh, he ends up calling the first of his, what are going to be disciples, and there's Andrew, Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel. And Jesus, in chapter 1, verse 51, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Speaking of himself, he's taking this image, this Jacob, God appearing to Jacob, the stairway to heaven. What is the stairway? It's a bridge to God. What is the stairway? It's access to God. Jesus says, what you're seeing there, you can apply that in my life. It's as if Jesus is saying, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I'm the way to heaven. I'm the way to God in heaven. It's as if Jesus is that stairway. It's as if Jesus is that ladder. But wait, where is God? Is he at the top or is he with us? Well, that's interesting. It could be translated either way. It sounds like he's the path, he's the method, he's the way, and he's at the top with God the Father right now, and he's also right there with us at the same time. I think that's neat. It finally makes sense to me. (laughs) All right, let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word, and we thank you, Lord, that there are some questions that we're going to have that are going to stay with us for years, and finally one day the light bulb goes on, we go, I get it now. That was my experience this Uh, this week preparing for this study, and we thank you, God, that we can look forward to those kinds of experiences all through our lives as we read through your word. It's never going to be exhausted. We're never going to fully know, but you're always going to have something new, some new wonderful gift to bring out and share with us, and we thank you for that. God, we thank you for the challenge that you give us now. Help us, Lord, to live that anointed life. You've described us as anointed And uh, that's holy and set apart for you, and that's also invested with authority. Help us to figure out what that means and to live it out. Thank you, God, that the cross is the symbol, but you are the one worthy of worship. Help us not to ever mix that up. 
Go with us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. You guys have a wonderful day. God's word is good stuff.